It seems as though the people of Israel, as they have come out of Egypt, are faced with two polar opposites. The two polar opposites are opposites that we face in our Christian life. Uh, It's the opposite, first, of believing. God has called them out of Egypt by his great power and by his great might, and he has told them, I'm enough for you, believe me. And he has shown mighty acts of power, but the way that God acts is never in the time frame that we would expect him to act. For example, we want him to act much sooner. We want him to act now, and we want the trial that we're facing to just sort of be whisked away under his strength. So when they're coming out of Egypt, there's Pharaoh who's chasing them. And it sure would have been nice at the first sign of Pharaoh's chase that God would have just sent a lightning bolt down. Boom, you're done. Everybody like, yes, that's our God for us. We get into the wilderness and there's lakes and fountains of water. Yes, it would have been nice if God just did, boom, there's all the fresh water that you can have. But God doesn't act that way. God allows his people to go through seasons of trials, and in those seasons of trials, the constant refrain is believe, believe, believe. Turn to me, face me, trust me. That's what we face. On the other end, the polar opposite is fear. Uh, We fear the circumstances. We fear even ourselves. We fear what might be. And so these two polar opposites are part of life, and yet God says, trust me. And and the way to see fear defeated is to continually trust him. It seems as though the Christian church, in many people's eyes, is more characterized by fear. Fear because of circumstances that are unfolding in the world. Fear because of circumstances that are unfolding in people's lives. We're characterized by fear. We might not get what we want. Uh, We might have to endure through trials that are going to overwhelm us. We might lose what we once had, those kinds of things. And so fear, unfortunately, in the eyes of many, has become the label almost the train that Christians are seen as riding. Thankfully, God calls us back, and he tells us, trust me, believe. Uh, When we come to this passage this morning, what we're seeing is God once again prove himself to be faithful on behalf of his people. He's going to show himself to be powerful. He's going to show himself to be the one who keeps and guards his people and always provides a way forward for them. There are times when you can't see the way forward until you get to the next step and God is saying, I'm not going to show you the way forward until we endure all the way through this and then I will reveal a way forward and it's going to be through faith. So as we go through this passage this morning, Numbers 22 through chapter 25, what we're seeing is another episode of God's faithfulness in the lives of his people. And I just want to encourage you this morning, God is faithful on behalf of his people. 
So backdrop to the book of Numbers, if you are joining us for the first time in this series. Numbers is cast within the framework of whether or not God is going to be faithful to his, his promise with Abraham. Back in Genesis 12, verse 7, God told Abram this. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and he said, To your offspring I will give this land. That was 400 years previous to our study here in Numbers. And as you're reading the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament, you read it like a book. And there's five individual chapters in this book. And so in Genesis, God makes this promise to Abram that your people are going to inherit that land. And so you travel with the story through Exodus and you see the Jews down in Egypt and God shows himself to be faithful. He redeems them, he pulls them out and he takes them out into the wilderness down in the area of the Sinai Peninsula and then he leads them through Sinai into the wilderness and up towards this promised land. It should have been a two to four week journey walking by foot. And yet what happened is this generation of people whom God redeemed from Egypt goes from being people who are marked by faithfulness to people who are marked by fear, grumbling and complaining about life's circumstances. And God says, okay, for your judgment now, you will not inherit the land and so for 40 years, he has them doing, if you will, a circle in the wilderness. And we're coming to the very end of that 40-year period in the book of Numbers. In fact, chapter 25 is the last of that generation that's going to die off in the wilderness. Next week, we see the new generation come in. And the question is, is God able to lead his people and be faithful to his promise and bring them to the land that he has, he has promised to them? So we're moving through another section and we will see God be faithful. Let me give you the big idea for the sermon this week on the front end. Here's the big idea. God's people will and can endure because of his protection and provision. God's people will and can endure because of his protection and provision. Now, what we'll do is we'll break that big idea down to the two points of the sermon. So point number one is God's people will endure because of his protection. God's people will endure because of his protection. So Pastor Mike read the opening passage in chapter 22. Israel is on the march up near Moab. Moab is just east of the Jordan River. And Moab sees Israel coming and the king of Moab is in fear of this great mass of people. His name is Balak. And so what Balak does is he contacts this, this individual who is in, in contact with the, the spirit world. His name is Balaam. So not to confuse the two names, Balak and Balaam. Balaam lives in the Far East and he is known for having contact with the deities. And Balak's idea is, let's get Balaam over here now so that he can contact the deities and call a curse down on these Israelites. Now, don't let your mind wander into just, oh, that's all a bunch of hocus pocus. 
Throughout the Bible, you see folks in contact with the spirit world. You remember the witch at Endor who called up the soul of Samuel and had a conversation there? Even back in Egypt, the magicians in Pharaoh's court were doing some crazy things that can't really be explained. There's a spiritism that's going on, and the goal is for Balaam to get in contact and call a curse down here. So, Balak sends this envoy, princes and money, and says, come on back here with me. I need you to call down this curse. Verse 8, those folks come to Balak, and he says to them, lodge here tonight, and I will bring back word to you as the Lord speaks to me. All right, here's one of the confusing parts of this story. Is Balaam a good guy? Because he sounds like he's just going to speak whatever the Lord speaks to him. I'll tell you on the front end, Balaam is not a good guy. We'll find that out later. He's in it for the money. And God said to Balaam, who are these men who are with you? Verse 10, Balaam said to God, Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, has sent to me saying, behold, a people has come out of Egypt and it has covered the face of the earth. We know that from the story if we've been reading this book, Genesis through Deuteronomy. So Balaam says now, or Balak says, now come curse them for me. Perhaps I shall be able to fight against them and drive them out. God said to Balaam, you shall not go with them. You shall not curse the people for they are blessed. So Balaam rose in the morning and said to the princes of Balak, go to your own land. Now keep in mind, Israel has no clue that any of this is happening. Yet God is all throughout these chapters and he's telling Balaam, knock this nonsense off. Tell Balak to, to eat dirt, you know, go home. Well, the princes go back to Balak, and Balak won't give up that easily. He sends more princes and a greater envoy, more pomp. In verse 18, it says, Balaam answered to those that came back to him and said to the servants of Balak, though Balak were to give me his house <clears throat> full of silver and gold, I could not go beyond the command of the Lord my God to do less or more. So you too, please stay here tonight that I may know what the Lord will say to me. All right, you can just kind of hear the motive that Balaam has right now. Hopefully drop some more cash into my pockets and I'll have some sort of word from the deity that allows me to go. Verse 22. God says go, verse 22, but God's anger was kindled because he went and the angel of the Lord took his stand in the way as his adversary. Now, this bothers me a little bit sometimes. Why was God's anger kindled even after he told Balaam to go? Well, God has a different purpose for Balaam going than what Balaam wants to go. It's kind of like a guy coming to his wife and saying, Honey, I have a work meeting in Detroit on Mother's Day. It's Sunday afternoon at one o'clock. And the wife says, oh, that's too bad. Go ahead and go. But why? What's at one o'clock? Where are you meeting? Well, I have this work meeting scheduled at the Tigers game, and I have to go. And it's one thing for the wife to say, okay, you got a meeting, but she knows now that his motive for going was to set up a meeting at the Tigers game so he could take in the Tigers game. I think the same thing is going on right now with God. Balaam, go. 
But I know why you want to go. It's not for the same reason that I am sending you. So God is adverse to what's going on here. His anger is kindled. According to Jude 11, we know that Balaam's heart was not where it should be. Jude 11 says this, Woe to them, for they walk in the way of Cain and abandon themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error. So verse 22, God's anger was kindled because he went. And here you have just one of the most comical stories in the Bible. The angel of the Lord took his stand in the way as his adversary. Now he was riding on his donkey and his two servants were with him. Verse 23. And the donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the road with a drawn sword in his hand. And the donkey turned aside out of the road and went into the field. And Balaam struck the donkey to turn her into the road. Well, then the angel of the Lord stood in a narrow path between the vineyards with a wall on either side. And when the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she pushed against the wall and pressed Balaam's foot against the wall. So he struck her again. Verse 26. Then the angel of the Lord went ahead and stood in a narrow place where there was no way to turn either to the right or to the left. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she lay down under Balaam. And notice now what happens. Balaam's anger was kindled. So you have God's anger that's kindled earlier. Now you have Balaam's anger that's kindled. Balaam can't see the glory of God in all of this. And he strikes the donkey with his staff. Then the Lord, think about this kids, imagine this. Then the Lord opened the mouth of the donkey. And she said to Balaam, what have I done to you that you have struck me these three times? I mean, can you... All right, we're familiar with Mr. Ed, the famous Mr. Ed, right? Some of you who are younger, Mr. Ed was a show about a talking horse. But this is not a show. This is taking place where the donkey turns her head and starts talking to Balaam. Says, what have I done to you that you have struck me these three times? Verse 29, Balaam said to the donkey, because you've made me a fool. I wish I had a sword in my hand, then I would kill you. Now notice the connection with the sword right here. Verse 30, and the donkey said to Balaam, am I not your donkey on which you have ridden all your life long to this day? Is it my habit to treat you this way? Balaam said, no. Verse 31, then the Lord opened the eyes of Balaam and he saw the angel of the Lord. Now there's talk, is this angel a Christophany? Is this Christ himself? Is it an angelic being from the Lord's presence? There's debate on that. You can do the research on your own. Here's the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his drawn sword. He has it in his hand. Now remember what Balaam would have done if he had a sword. He would have hacked the donkey. Here's the angel with the drawn sword, and Balaam bows down and falls on his face. Verse 32, the angel of the Lord said to him, why have you struck your donkey these three times? Behold, I have come out to oppose you because your way, Balaam, your way of doing things, your heart is perverse before me. The donkey saw me and turned aside before me these three times. If she had not turned aside from me, surely just now I would have killed you and let her live. The one with the sword 
is standing in front of Balaam saying, I've got this hanging over you. And watch out now. Verse 35, the angel of the Lord said to Balaam, now you go with the men. Now, now think about this. He's got a sword in his hand. Go with the men, but speak only the word that I tell you. Now, what are you going to speak if somebody is in your presence with a sword that's up in the air? You're only going to say what they tell you to say because your life depends on it. So now here's Balaam, a man who's known for his greed of money, and he's going here because he wants his money, but now here's an angel who's got a sword up, and Balaam's going to have to speak only because he wants to preserve his life. So down in verse 38, Balaam comes to Balak says, the word that God puts in my mouth, that I must speak. And the only reason he's doing that is because he knows that there's a sword over his head. Now, what do we see coming through chapter 22? Israel, whom we've been following through these 21 chapters, is up in the plains near the Jordan River within eyesight of Moab, but they have no clue what God is doing with the enemy. One of the principles that you can take away from chapter 22 is God knows and sees everything that is going on with the enemy, and we also see that he is letting the enemy proceed at times. God is in control, and like I said at the very beginning, if it were up to us, we would have said to the enemy, you're smoked, you're done, it's finished. And God could have done that back in Genesis 3 if he wanted to. But right now here is Israel, completely blind and not necessarily in a wrong way, to the fact that there is something that is going on over here where God is in control. God is seeing all of this through and he's going to use even the enemies of God's people for his own glory. It's a comfort to know that God is in control of our enemies. So we move on to verse or chapter 23. Balaam, greedy Balaam, asks Balak to have seven altars built and to bring seven bulls and seven rams to bring it up to this mountain where they can see Israel. There's sacrifices that are taken that take place there. In verse 5, it says that the Lord put a word in Balaam's mouth and said, now return to Balak and thus you shall speak. And so Balaam is committed to speaking whatever the Lord has told him. Verse seven now, what has God told him? Balaam took up his discourse and said this. Here's Balak who wants the curse. Here's what Balaam says. From Aram, Balak has brought me, the king of Moab from the eastern mountains, Come, curse Jacob for me, and come, denounce Israel. How can I curse whom God has not cursed? How can I denounce whom the Lord has not denounced? For from the top of the crags I see him, from the hills I behold him. Behold, a people dwelling alone and not counting itself among the nations. In other words, they're completely separate. They're not part of the world. 
Verse 10, who can count the dust of Jacob? Abraham's line has multiplied or number a fourth part of Israel. Let me die the death of the upright and let my end be like his. Do you see what's just happened? Balak has brought Balaam here to curse the people. But look what verse 11 says. Balak says, what have you done to me? I took you to curse my enemies and behold, you have done nothing but bless them. And he answered and said, must I not take care to speak what the Lord puts in my mouth? So here's failure number one, if you will, for Balak. But it doesn't stop there because God's enemies don't stop. They keep pressing in. And so he asks Balaam for another curse. So he takes him to another place. Verse 16. Lord comes to this greedy prophet whose life has been threatened. Remember? And he says, return to Balak, and thus shall you speak. So here's the second pronouncement, verse 18. Balaam took up his discourse and said, rise, Balak, and hear. Give ear to me, O son of Zippor. God is not man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? What is God saying through Balaam right now? We learned this verse back in, like, Awana or Sunday school when we were kids. God doesn't lie. But the context of this is going all the way back to God's promise to Abraham. God's going to make a promise, and God's not going to go back on his promise. What God has spoken will come to completion. So for Israel here, Balaam is saying, God can't lie about the way that he's going to prosper them and bring them into the land. Verse 21, he has not beheld misfortune in Jacob, nor has he seen trouble in Israel. The Lord their God is with them, and the shout of a king is among them. God brings them out of Egypt and is for them like horns of a wild ox. Think about this in history where the wild ox was a beast of strength and no man's strength could stand against it. And those horns will flail against anything that opposes it. And here is God saying, I am for my people. And no man can withstand what I am for. So verse 23 for there is no enchantment against Jacob. There is no divination against Israel. In other words, they will not be cursed. Now it shall be said of Jacob and Israel, what God has wrought. And so here, God is saying, there is going to be no enchantment, no curse. Why? That last phrase, this is what God has wrought. That's a word that we don't use often today. It's what God has worked. It's what God has produced. And when God comes and produces something, it is going to finish its task. It's going to be seen all the way through. So about two months ago, I had a request item on my list of things to do at home. And the request item was, Build a bookcase right there. 
And so I started out with all kinds of ideas online and looking at all these, I don't know if it was Pinterest or where it was, but I found the images and okay, that's going to fit right there and that's going to work. So I assembled this thing. This has been my work that I've been putting together for about two months now. And it's about done. It's just got a few nail holes that need to be filled and then some touch-up paint. But I sit at my end of the table and I look down at it and I think, huh, I see a nail. My nail gun poked a nail out through there. Oh man, that doesn't look good. And I see some lines on the whole thing that look a little crooked and I see some areas that need some caulk. I see all of my failures as I look at this project because it's mine. But when God starts a task, there's no failing in God's tasks at all. There are no, no faults in God's. Look at what God has wrought. And so Balaam is saying, look at all those tents. Look at all those people. This is the work of God. And folks, here we are living on this side of the cross. And we look at passages like Ephesians 2.10. How does God see us? Ephesians 2.10, for we are his workmanship. And the reason why we can say, look at what God has wrought is not because we look at ourselves and see ourselves all cleaned up. Notice the next phrase. Look at what God has wrought because we are created in whom? Christ Jesus. The finishing beautiful touches on our lives is nothing that we can brag about because all we bring to our salvation is sin. And yet what God brings to us is the righteousness of Christ. We've been created in Christ Jesus. And so, folks, the church of Christ is a beautiful work of God. Look at what he has wrought. Will it be defeated? No, it won't. We'll talk about that in just a minute. Philippians 1.6, he who began a good work in you was mentioned earlier in our service. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. God's people will and can endure because of God, because of his protection. Verse 24 Behold a people as a lioness, it rises up and as a lion it lifts itself. It does not lie down until it has devoured the prey and drunk the blood of the slain. As you look at this imagery of lion, it starts way back in Genesis where God has promised that from Judah is going to come a lion. And moving all the way to the end of the Bible, Revelation chapter 5 verse 5 there is the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, and what characterizes him? He says, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. And so, folks, those who are in Christ are part of God's conquering work. It's going to happen for us. And so God will protect his people because of our nature inside of Christ Jesus. Here's the lion fighting on our behalf. We got to keep moving. Chapter 24, it's filled with two more oracles, two more attempts from Balak to pronounce curses. 
to have Balaam pronounce curses. I'm just going to move through these and you can follow along in your scriptures. Verse three, the oracle of Balaam, the son of Beor, the oracle of the man whose eye is opened, the oracle of him who hears the words of God, who sees the vision of the Almighty falling down with his eyes uncovered. How lovely are your tents, O Jacob. Here's another compliment. Your encampments, O Israel, like palm groves that stretch afar, like gardens beside a river, like aloes that the Lord has planted. Sounds like creation language here. Like cedar trees beside the water. Verse 7. Waters shall flow from his bucket, and his seed shall be in many waters. His king shall be higher than Agag. Agag was about 400 years to come. And his kingdom shall be exalted. God brings him out of Egypt and is for him like the horns of the wild ox. He shall eat up the nations, his adversaries, and shall break their bones in pieces and pierce them through his arrows. He crouched, he lay down like a lion and a lioness. Who will rouse him up? We're going to move to oracle number four. Balak is disappointed, has him go back and Try again. Fourth oracle, verse 14. Come, I will let you know what this people will do to your people in the latter days. And he took up his discourse and said, The oracle of Balaam, the son of Beor, the oracle of the man whose eye is opened, the oracle of him who hears the words of God and knows the knowledge of the Most High, who sees the visions of the Almighty falling down with his eyes uncovered. Did I just read that one? No. Verse 17, but I see him not now, I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab. And again, just thinking biblically, where have you seen that language before? Yes, all the way back in Genesis 3, here is the seed of the woman who is going to crush the forehead of the serpent. There's going to be victory through Christ himself. He's going to break down the sons of Sheth. Verse 18, Edom shall be dispossessed. Sarah also his enemies shall be dispossessed. Israel is doing valiantly. Verse 19, and one from Jacob shall exercise dominion and destroy the survivors of the city. So when I look at these oracles, folks, I can't help but think this is the language that Israel fails in, but Christ will be victorious in. And we see this from passages like Daniel 2, verse 44. In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, or, that, or shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Like, you see all of this being pronounced here, and as you follow Israel's history, it becomes a history of miserable failure, actually. There are brief moments that are enlightening, but as you follow the storyline through Scripture, there's going to be another one that's called up out of Egypt. Matthew chapter 2. And through Christ, victory will come. God will be victorious, and because God will be victorious, his people will be protected. This truth is played out in Scripture over and over again, folks. 
that God's people are not going to be devoured. So remember, I'm talking about the polarities between fear and faith. Fear. Are we going to be devoured? Faith. God's word says no. God's word says that we are his workmanship. God's word says that he's beginning a good work. God says that he is bringing a kingdom and those who share in, or those who follow Christ are going to share in the spoils of victory in this kingdom. And then you look for examples. All right, give me something to hold on to. Look at Job. Here's the enemy. The enemy is on God's leash. Satan, you can only go this far with my man right here. Look at Nehemiah as he's rebuilding the wall. God is going to bring the victory and will only let the enemies go so far in Nehemiah's life. You think about Peter. Here's Satan who comes and demands that he would have Satan's soul and sift it like wheat. I'm going to pull Peter away. I want him to be mine. And Jesus says, no, because I have greater power and authority over Satan. So, Peter, I have prayed for you that Satan might not sift you. You're one of mine. I think about Jesus' words about the church itself. This is the church, and what will not prevail against it? The gates of hell will not prevail. As you continue throughout Scripture, the life of the believer is facing the attacks of Satan, but we know that even in facing the attacks of Satan, God is only saying, only this far, only this far, only this far, only that far. Revelation chapter 12, such an encouraging passage here, how God is protecting his people. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ The Savior whom we worship have come. Notice this. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before God. You have an accuser, just like Satan or Peter had an accuser. And there's Satan in God's presence saying, look at Nate's sin. Look at Nate's sin. He failed. He sinned again over and over again. You cast me out of your presence? Shouldn't you cast Nate out of your presence? But this accuser has been thrown down and notice the second part they conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony for they loved not their lives even unto death folks the victory that we have over sin is that Jesus's blood has conquered sin for us and Satan's presence it's real It's real, but God is only saying so far, so far, so far. And here's my son, the greater son, the Christ and his kingdom, which is far greater than Satan's power in our lives. And so we as people can say, yes, there's all kinds of sin and all kinds of junk going on in the world. And it is kind of fearful, but I'm not going to live in fear of that. I have faith in who Christ is. And I can see episode after episode after episode Where God is at work and saying, only so far, only so far, only so far, only so far. We can be encouraged that God's people will endure because of God's protection over them. You are being protected right now by the good hand of God. But it doesn't stop there. We have chapter 25. 
Chapter 25 is the last of the old generation that was dying off in the wilderness. Remember Balaam? And I told you, he's a no good boy. He works up another plan. And that plan we know is attributed to him from Numbers 31, verse 16. I think I got it up on the screen for you. Numbers 31, verse 16 where it says, Balaam's advice caused the people of Israel to act treacherously against the Lord in the incident of Peor. And so the plague came among the congregation to the Lord. We'll talk about it here in just a minute. Revelation 2.14, the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. What we see here is that Balaam concocted another plan. He couldn't speak because the sword was up against him. But he went to Balak and said, hey, get some of those Midianite prostitutes, send them to the outskirts of the camp, and have the men in the camp just start uh, seeing these ladies. All right. Well, what happened is verse 6. It worked. The sexual temptations worked. Behold, one of the people of Israel came and brought a Midianite woman to his family in the sight of Moses and in the sight of the whole congregation of the people of Israel. Now, the whole sight of the congregation of the people of Israel, you remember how the tribes were arranged at the beginning of Numbers. What's at the center that they all can see? The tabernacle. And it appears as though this guy brings a Midianite woman right to the center of the camp. Well, what was happening? Verse 7. When Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, saw it, he rose and left the congregation and took a spear in his hand and went after the man of Israel into the chamber and pierced both of them with his spear, the man of Israel and the woman through her belly. Thus the plague on the people of Israel was stopped. Nevertheless, those who died by the plague were 24,000. So here they are in some sort of sexual act right in the middle of everybody. And they've gone from being people who are committed in faith now to this leftover generation that is marked by being lustful, given over to their appetites. And Phineas, the grandson of Aaron, the high priest, has said, I've seen enough. And he takes this spear and throws it through the back of the man, through the belly of the woman. And the text goes on to say that that act of Phineas was pleasing in the sight of God and made atonement for sin. You think, wow, what should I take away from that? Here's what you should take away from that. God takes sin seriously. We are not throwing spears at all. That was under an old covenant. But you have to see God's perspective of sin. Now, how should we conclude this? We conclude this by going to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. So take your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 
what we're seeing in this is that God's people can endure because of his provision. God's people can endure because of his provision. So God's people will endure because of his protection. God will see his people through. And there's this tension of God's sovereignty and our human responsibility. So we're living in the moment. And how do we live in the moment? Well, verse 6 of 1 Corinthians 10. Paul is recounting what took place here at Peor. Now, these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Verse 8. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. Therefore, let anyone who thinks he takes stand, or thinks that he stands, take heed lest he fall. Verse 13, here's where we live. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Okay, so let me just recap where we've been and just conclude with this. We know that God in his divine sovereignty is going to protect his people to the end. He is going to see the church to the end. And yet here we are in our human responsibility living the day-to-day lives of facing temptations and we see that there are some people who are going to fall off and commit sin and wander away and wander into disobedience. And we have this promise, no, God is going to bring his people, yet what's that going to look like in the day-to-day life? And God says, let these be an example to you. And remember that no temptation has overtaken you. There are temptations and realities that each of us face. God could have protected Israel from those Midianite women just like he protected them from Balaam, but he didn't. He allowed that to happen. Right now, folks, we are living in a sensualized, sexualized culture. And I know that God in his power could say, nope, we're not going to have any of it. And yet he has chosen for that to be allowed to happen right now. And we look at our kids and we think, oh my, how are we going to see our kids through the next generation? How are they going to get through all of this? Sovereignty, responsibility. I know that God's going to protect his church and yet here's the responsibility. We teach our children that that is an example for us not to desire. Verse 13 No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. Here's the three words. God is faithful. God is faithful. He's faithful in that he will provide a way of escape so that you might be able to endure it. Every temptation that we face is common. There is nothing that you are facing or have faced, or will face, that others have not faced already. Sometimes we think, it's just me. 
I'm the only one who has had to endure this. And God is saying, no, I want you to know one way of escape is this. You're not the only one who has faced your thoughts, your lusts, your fears, your anxieties. You're not the only one who has done this. This has been common to my people. My people have had to face these temptations all along the way. The thoughts of leaving. No, there's been others who have had to face those same thoughts. The thoughts of retaliating, the temptation to do so. Nope, there have been others who have had to face that. Your temptation is a common temptation. Now, God is faithful. And here's what he says. God has provided a way so that whatever that temptation is, that Satan might be throwing out there as a lure to pull you away, God has provided a way for you to escape. Every temptation has a promise to it. And every door of escape that God provides has a promise to it as well. And this goes back to faith. Promises like this, when I'm facing that temptation, I need to delight myself in the Lord right now and he will place desires in my heart. I need to fight that temptation with this faith that, God, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. I can fight the the promise of that temptation by thinking, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. You see, folks, we have a path forward that we live in faith. It's the promises of God. And as we hold the promises of God, we'll endure to the end. We know that God's people will and can endure because of his protection and because of his provision. Let's pray.